Every now and then I hear the word Trinity and still think, that sounds Latin or mathematical or abstract or something. But if all Trinity means is threeness, well, if you've ever read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and you know that we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, like, is, is three in Matthew 28 or isn't it? If you ask that, who is God on the basis of what's revealed in Scripture question? Well, God is one, and that one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Fred Sanders. Fred serves as professor of theology at the Tory Honors Institute at Biola University. He's also the author of numerous articles and books, including The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything, with Crossway. Today, Fred and I discuss what it really means to say that God is a trinity, three persons in one God. He explains why the doctrine of the Trinity is essential to the gospel, even if it seems abstract or confusing, highlights why all analogies and metaphors are of limited value when thinking about the Godhead, and responds to the charge that the idea of three in one when it comes to the Trinity is inherently illogical or irrational. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today, Dr. Sanders. It's good to be here. So I want you to imagine something, if you would, for a minute with me. Imagine you're on an elevator at a conference and you're running late to speak in a session. So you step into the elevator, you have about a minute to get to your session, and then in walks another guy who, who immediately notices the name badge that you're wearing, Fred Sanders, Biola University, and then maybe even sees the book that you're holding in your hand, The Deep Things of God, how the Trinity changes everything, and immediately asks you, and immediately turns to you and says, that looks like a really interesting book. Uh, what is the Trinity, and how does it change everything? How would you respond in that one minute that you have before you need to run off to your session? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's hard. Um, I would say that the the doctrine of the Trinity is the Christian doctrine of God. It answers the question who God is on the basis of what God has done, and that the key to understanding the Trinity is to associate the God with the gospel. That is to say, to take the gospel that the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit to save fallen humanity, uh, that goes with the doctrine of the Trinity. Hmm. So you connect the gospel and the Trinity, you wouldn't separate those in any way. That's right. The fundamental move here is a, an act of association so that if someone hears the word Trinity and their natural association is something like, oh, well, that's um, an incomprehensible mystery that we can't even make any progress on understanding. It's just a formula we memorize. Maybe it's like shamrocks or icebergs or something else analogical. Um, that's probably what that's like. That's what that goes with. Um, I'm arguing, no, the association you ought to make is oh, right, the Trinity, that is the identity of God based on the gospel. Since we know the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit for our salvation, then we know that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Hmm. If you can get that associative connection made, then all sorts of other things fall into place, and you can understand why it's relevant. Yeah, I want to return to that, the connection, the inextricable connection between the Trinity and the gospel uh, in a little bit. Um, I think one of the things that we often think about when we, when we think of the Trinity, when we think of trying to explain the Trinity to uh, someone else, or we've heard it explained to us, is we typically run to metaphors and illustrations. Uh, and I think you argue that sometimes those can do more harm than good. 
And so I, I want to play a little little bit of a game. Uh, complete the sentence, the Trinity is not like dot, <laughs> dot, dot, and then explain why. Yeah, okay. I, I will say I've thought about writing a little book, something like 33 things the Trinity is not like. So this um, can, this can be a jump start for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, okay, great. So the Trinity is not like? The Trinity is not like a family or a group of people. The, the Trinity is not like a committee. Um, the Trinity is not like three people gathered together. Um, and I, I think maybe we're led into thinking that because the Trinity is three persons in relation. And so we think, oh, right, people in a group. No, persons in relation is how we talk in the doctrine of the Trinity, that within the one God, God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in relation. Yeah, it seems like in our language we use the word person, and the only reference that we have in our day-to-day lives are other individual people right. around us. Yeah. So why would, why would we use that language if it seems to imply something that maybe isn't correct? Yeah, this is one of those um, uh, problems that comes up from the, the blessing of the fact that this is a very ancient doctrine. Um, you know, English is a young language, so anytime you're just criticizing ancient Christian doctrine in English, you have to remember you're talking about something older than the language you're speaking in. Um, and actually the word person was kind of honed and uh, refined in order to talk about what there are three of in God. I actually think it's an advantage that when we talk about the Trinity, we say three persons, because in English, in colloquial English, that's an awkward way of talking. I, almost nobody says person, except maybe the fire marshal. You know, you go to a building <laughs> and it says, not to be occupied by more than 90 persons. Hmm. You know, person? Who says that? We say people. Hmm. Um, that's just kind of a little reminder that we are not talking about three people in God. Yeah, yeah. And, and even the difference, you can even say that there's a difference between relation and relationship. If we say relationship, it's not technically wrong to say Father, Son, and Spirit are in a relationship, but it comes loaded with all kind of sort of post-60s therapeutic, psychological. It suggests a, a history of intimate exchanges in which we grow closer to each other. Mm. Um, so there's just something a little off about saying three people in a relationship as opposed to something more austere about saying, oh, the, the Christian doctrine of the one God, the biblical doctrine of the one God is that it's three persons in relation. Yeah, what would you say to the the metaphor of the egg? That seems like it's another common one. Yeah. Um, in what ways is the Trinity not like an egg? Yeah, well, the, the main thing about the, the an egg analogy is it's, I think it's answering the question, how can three be one? And how can three be one is just not a prominent question that arises in the biblical witness. You know, you don't, John and Paul, uh, the apostles, were pretty smart, and you never see them kind of pulling back and saying, now, how can three be one exactly? If you decide to pose that pretty abstract question, you can think of a lot of things that are unities composed of three parts, and an egg is that kind of unity. It's got a shell and a yolk and an egg white, and those are three distinct parts that are not each other, but that are one egg. Of course, the way that's not like the Trinity is the Trinity is not made of one-third father, then this other third that is the Son, and another third to add up to one, which is the Holy Spirit. Why, why isn't that a right way to think about it? Um, because if that were true, Jesus wouldn't be God. Jesus would be exactly one third of God incarnate. And, and so <laughs> then you'd, you'd realize, oh, I must have divided by zero because I was trying to affirm that Jesus is God. Then when I put together a bad doctrine of the Trinity, I ended up with Jesus being one third of God. And a third of God is probably not a coherent concept. 
Hmm. Like, I, I don't know what that is. It's like mm-hmm. infinity divided by three, right? It, <laughs> it, it seems plausible, but the more you think about it, the less there is there to think of. Yeah, so you would resist the claim that the Trinity as a doctrine is illogical. Um, oh, right, yeah, it doesn't um, contradict logic. Hmm. Um, it, it's above logic, and, and um, it... What's the right way to say this? Because you don't want to make it sound like I just said nonsense. Yeah, because wouldn't wouldn't the claim that it's above logic or beyond logic yeah. sort of couldn't that just be seen as a dodge? Like, uh, it doesn't make sense, but we're just we're going to say he doesn't need to make sense. Yes, yeah. So I admit that's the kind of thing you would say if you believe nonsense. And so Christian theology has to come up with a way to signal and clarify that we're not just trying to come up with defenses of nonsense. So, for instance, to to say that God is three persons in one being is not a violation of the law of non-contradiction. It's not, for instance, saying God is a square circle, Hmm. um, because it's actually impossible to be a square circle, right? Like if, in fact, if your eternal destiny depended on you believing in a square circle, you still couldn't do it. You can say the words square circle, you can put that adjective in front of that noun, but you actually can't form a mental idea to correspond to it. Hmm. Like, well, it's a circle, but it has four corners. So that would be the case. That would also apply to the Trinity if we were saying that God is three gods in one God. But we're not saying that. We're saying he's three persons in one God or with one essence. Uh-huh. Is yeah. that right? Or in one being. That's so that's right. where those two different words, persons versus being or essence, come into play. Right. And this is also why the analogies um, or metaphors or things that you talked about, this is why they don't work. Because if I tell you, here's the thing with God, the one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. And you say, interesting. Now, could you give me several examples of that? Well, no, I can't give you several examples of that. It's a little bit like if I said, God made heaven and earth out of nothing. And you said, cool, give me some examples of that. I can't. <laughs> I mean, I can give you, if you're talking about getting conceptual clarity, just so you know, you know, that we're making a claim here that we can talk about, I could say, well, what is creation ex nihilo like? Creation out of nothing is kind of like earlier this week I made myself a sandwich. You know, first there was no sandwich, then I did something and there was a sandwich. Hmm. That's a little bit like God making heaven and earth. Now, if I say that, both of us immediately know, well, it's not very much like it, is it? Because you just assembled materials, and that's not what we're talking about with God. We're sort of in a safe zone there, because almost nobody is going to mistake my making a sandwich with God making heaven and earth out of nothing. Yeah. Maybe where we get into trouble is if I say, oh, the Trinity is a little bit like an egg, sort of, or kind of like a group of people, or maybe a little like a mind knowing itself and loving itself. It's kind of like that. As long as you are well aware the whole time that God's not very much like that, great. So I'm all for a very limited use of analogies. For instance, how is the sun from the Father? Oh, kind of like heat and light come from the solar disk. You know, they they come from it without leaving it. Okay, in a very limited way, that shows you one part of of what's going on in the Mm. doctrine of the Trinity. So it's not necessarily wrong to use analogies at times, but you would just want to caution us not to take them too far, not to over-rely on them when it comes to thinking about these things. Yeah, and, and fundamentally, I think this gets back to the, the idea of what we associate the doctrine of the Trinity with. If you associate the doctrine of the Trinity with the problem of how three can be one, then of course you're going to ask, why does that matter? Can you, can you now give me another argument for why this matters or makes any difference? But if you, and that's where the analogies come in, like maybe it matters because an analogy explains it to me. 
and then mm. I can somehow apply that to my life. But if when I say Trinity, you think the Father sent the Son and the Spirit, if you associate Trinity with the gospel, then the last thing on your mind is going to be to ask, and why does that matter? Because I just explained that the Trinity goes with the gospel, and so that inherently matters. What would you say to someone who says, well, the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible, and therefore it's a doctrine that is mostly kind of a theological construct that Christians can debate or maybe even not hold or hold a different view of? Uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so it's true that the the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And so if you say, is the Trinity in the Bible, and you're asking about the word, then we can solve that quickly with a concordance, right, <laughs> or with a search function on your app. Um, the question, though, is whether um, the, the content of the doctrine of the Trinity is taught in Scripture. And that's where I would say you read the whole Bible left to right and ask yourself the question, what's the main point here, and according to what happened here, who is God? If you ask that who is God on the basis of what's revealed in Scripture question, um, then I think you're going to have to say, well, God is one, and that one God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. I even Sometimes I even push back on the idea that um, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. There's an obvious sense in which that's true. But if all Trinity means is threeness, and of course it is just, you know, Trinitas is just the Latin word for threeness, it's not like triunitas or triune, which, you know, it's words we invented to describe this thing. It really is just saying that in God there is a threeness. Well, if you've ever read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and you know that we baptize in the name, the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you can count to three. <laughs> you know, if I, and if I were being pushy, I'd say, am I allowed to count to three? Like, <laughs> is, is three in Matthew 28 or isn't it? I think it is, though the word three is not there. You'd have to be a pretty obstinate kind of verbalist to insist that threeness isn't in Matthew. Now, that doesn't solve the whole problem. Obviously, we need to have a discussion about what threeness, because a modalist would say it's a threeness of different modes that the one unipersonal God has. Or a subordinationist would say it's three, but one of them's God, one of them's a creature, and one of them is a force. Right? Oh, well, we're going to disagree about what threeness is there. Um, I think maybe we get tricked by the sound of the word Trinity. Yeah. And I'll admit, I grew up in a very low church setting, and I'm very comfortable in a low church setting where we don't use large, elaborate words. And every now and then I hear the word Trinity and still think, that sounds Latin or mm. Catholic or yeah. mathematical or abstract or something. Yeah. yeah. So when we think about God in our day-to-day -day lives, we, we go through our lives and God pops in all the time as we think about things we're going to do or things we have done things we're going to say, think about the Bible. Um, is it important that we consciously think about him as a triunity when we think about him? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It seems like often when I think of God, I just think of a singular type of being. Yeah. Um, would you say it's important to train our minds to think of him as a, as a trinity? It's hard to know the right thing to say about that um, sort of phenomenologically, you know, in, in our experience. Um, I think I'm professionally obsessed with the Trinity. I, I think about it as a doctrine all the time, and um, spiritually, doctrinally, theologically, my thoughts about God are Trinitarian thoughts. But even I, if I'm driving and I see an accident starting to happen, and I just immediately say, you know, God protect protect those people, um, I just say God, and if you were to freeze frame and kind of thin slice that and say, what did you mean by God there, Trinitarianly speaking? I would have to say, consciously, what's going on in my mind is just the thought of God. Now, 
unconsciously or at the level of sort of implied meaning in the web of everything I believe, obviously it's the Trinity. But what's actually at the front of my consciousness is simply the thought of the one God, which is not false. But God is one. So it seems like as I think about my own history and I think about my friends and my church and, and people that I know, people that I love who are solid Christians, it does seem like the Trinity is one of those doctrines that often feels very intimidating to Christians. Mm. It feels hard to understand. It feels abstract and even a little bit distant, ironically. Uh, it feels like it maybe is disconnected from everyday life. Given how important you view it as being for the Christian life and being to even the gospel itself, um, why do you think it is that we often have that association, though, that it's this thing that's just like kind of far off and hard to understand? There is a depth element to this, right, that you need to sort of get beneath the surface experience, and, and we don't always dwell in those deeps, right? We have to live up on the surface a lot of the time. Um, but you can call to mind the reality of what you're involved in and notice that, boy, some of the shorthand ways we put things, some of the, the ways we just simply talk, you know, oh, I got saved because I believed in God. Well, there's a lot more under that right? That when you pause to reflect on it, you can kind of see the big picture. Um, and that's really what I'm excited about as a teacher of Trinitarian theology, is, is it's not when I can come in and someone's a blank slate, they've never heard of any of this, and I just get to write good doctrine on that blank slate. I mean, that, that sounds cool too. Um, but what's really going on is Christians, Bible-believing Christians, Christians really connected to the realities of the gospel, they get this at some level. They've got all the parts they need. And if I get to do that thing where I say, you see how this part over here fits with that part? And you know that other thing you believe? Um, and you can kind of call it all to mind at one time. There's something really exciting when all the things you already know kind of snap together into sort of a gestalt, you know? Like, they, they weren't a picture. Now they are a picture. They suddenly cohere. I thought it was an eye over here and an eye over there and a nose and somewhere a mouth. And then suddenly, bang, it snaps into place and you see that it's a face. Mm. That's what is really the exciting thing to me about teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. So a few months ago, or maybe it was a close to a year ago now, perhaps, but an organization did a survey of evangelicals and asked some questions about theology, trying to kind of get a sense for where people were at. And one of the questions was related to the Trinity. And I think they asked a question about the Son and whether or not he, what his relation to the Godhead was. And I think the question said that he was something like a created being, the first and greatest created being. And it, the results in the survey indicated that a lot of evangelicals, a majority of them, viewed him as, had chosen that he was some kind of created being. Mm -hmm. um, when you hear things like that, stats like that, or you just, in your own conversation with, with Christians, do you feel concerned that there is widespread, um, frankly, heresy related to this doctrine? Is that, is that a bothersome thing to you, or do you think... A lot of it just is, there's a, we don't know the language to use necessarily, but we, as you were saying, we do kind of believe the right things. Yeah. Yeah, so that particular survey, if I remember that question, it was something like they were, they were asked to affirm the statement, the Son of God, or maybe Jesus, I can't remember how they phrased it, um, is the first and greatest creature. Um, mm -hmm. I actually think if you think about how people are going to respond to a question, they hear the Son of God is the first and greatest, and they probably quit listening. They probably think, yeah, amen, yay Jesus. <laughs> Check that one. Because um, the word creature is kind of a weird word. You could accidentally say, you know, of all the creatures, isn't God the greatest? And then catch yourself and go, wait, 
creature means, no, that can't apply to God. Mm. I think that's probably what was going on there. However, yeah, I do think that where there's some doctrinal disarray in the churches. I think um, there's uh, there's a real need for what J.I. Packer has called um, catechetical theology, you know, where Christians are taught the basics, not in a boring way, not in a childish way, but in a way appropriate to their level of education and insight so that it grows as they grow, but it doesn't grow into more topics. It, it grows into a, a greater understanding more integrated with the full scope of biblical teaching and their spiritual experience. Hmm. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a problem, um, and a lot of teaching needs to happen. So one of the doctrines related to the Trinity that I think many evangelicals, many Christians, when they maybe first hear it, first even hear, it, hear the name of it, much less hear it explained, they find it surprising is the eternal generation of the Son. And that's a doctrine that just, I would imagine a lot of listeners even hearing me say that it, it just sounds a little foreign, a little bit mystical, or you know, not even Christian, perhaps. Can you briefly just define what that doctrine uh, states? Oh, yeah. It's that the Son uh, always stands in a relationship of fromness to the Father, um, that the, the Father and the Son are distinct persons, and that they are eternally related in a certain way, and that that relationship is sonship or origin or fromness. Hmm. But it's eternal. Um, so it's the same kind of move. We do this all the time in biblical teaching. Um, so Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven, and what we're saying there is God in heaven is like my Father, but he's in heaven, so he's not like my Father. Right? He's my heavenly Father. So there's kind of, what could you say, Jesus gives us something with one hand and kind of removes it with the other hand, right? Yeah. Heavenly Father is that kind of, you know, it sounds too too fancy to call it self-deconstructing, but it's, just, it's got this tension built into it. Father, but Heavenly Father. Heavenly, but my Father. Hmm. Um, eternal generation is like that. The Son is from the Father. Wait, you mean the Father used to just be the Father? No, He's eternally from the Father. Hmm. He's eternally begotten or eternally generated. So even that language then has been... You know, it's not it's not scriptural language necessarily, right. but it's been designed to hold us in tension on these things and not go too far one way or the other. Yeah, the great tradition of Christian interpretation has been trying to say what the word son means. So if you ask, when we say Jesus is the son of God, what do we mean? Um, do we mean he's younger than God? No. Do we mean um, he has a mom? If he has a father, he has a mom, right? Well, not divinely speaking. Well, do we mean... You see, you list all these things we don't mean when the Bible calls Jesus the Son, and what you're left with is he is from the Father. He's of the same substance, and he stands in a relation of generation to the Father. Hmm. Hmm. Now, that's not subordination. He's not less than the Father. That's the whole point of this. It's really from the Nicene theology of the fourth century. The whole point of saying it this way is to rule out all subordination. God makes everything else, but he generates the Son. The Father brings forth the Son from hmm. his own being. So how do we square that? what you just said about the lack of subordination, how should we square that with uh, statements that Jesus makes in the New Testament, specifically in the garden? He says, you know, take this cup from me, Father, mm. um, but not my will, uh, rather your will be done. He seems to be explicitly drawing a contrast between his own will and the will of the Father. Uh, how, how would we understand that? Yeah, um, so... Almost everything you're going to get in the New Testament is necessarily a statement of the sent Son who is incarnate. Um, what the what this classic Christian theology of eternal generation is getting at is 
oh gosh, if I could step back and put it this way, what's the difference between the Father and the Son? And if you say, well, the Son's incarnate, and I could say, it is true that the Son is incarnate and the Father is not, but um, why is the Son incarnate? Like, before the Son became incarnate, what was the difference between the Father and the Son? You could say, well, the Father made everything through the Son, and then the Son became incarnate. Okay, good, good answer. You pushed it back a long way, but you didn't push it all the way back into the being of God. You pushed it from redemption and incarnation back to creation, but you got to go back behind creation or you're not doing the doctrine of who God is. You're just doing the doctrine of what God does. And our statements about who the Son of God is can't just be statements about what God does. They have to be actually mm. statements about who God is. So you would say that when Jesus um, submits his will to the will of the Father as the incarnate man, Jesus, mm-hmm. um, that is, uh, that's uh, a function of his earthly mission uh, as the incarnate Son on earth, not... It doesn't speak to his um, his being in relation to the Father. Yeah, um, the sort of submitting of one will to another will is uh, that's a relationship between the divine and the human. It's not a relationship within God, hmm. because within God there are not three different people with three different wills that have to be adjusted to each other. There yeah. is one divine will of the one God who exists in three persons. Hmm. So the kind of um, Person-to-person submission and obedience is not something that is part of the very being of God. What, what encouragement would you offer pastors who, who want to do a better job, perhaps, of teaching their flock about these doc- doctrines in general, but even the Trinity in particular? So I would encourage them, in addition to the sort of serious pastoral task of making sure that the, the church is a, an informed, adult, you know, educated congregation on these things that matter, I would just want to emphasize that theology is fun, and, and they know it, and their people know it. Um, I think sometimes we get in this mode, if you've been through seminary, you've been through years of careful graduate study of this stuff, you're sort of self-aware that you've got these nerd moments where you're digging through the Greek, you know, like you're looking at the textual tradition and the footnotes of your critical edition of the Greek New Testament thinking like, I'm really doing some nerdy scholarship now. This is fun for me, but that's because I'm, you know, I'm that kind of person. I'm not going to unleash this sort of stuff on my congregation. Well, good. That's, that's a true instinct. We need to catch ourselves before we decide to treat everyone like they're a third-year seminary student. Uh, that's not what most Christians need most of the time. But there's also the fact that theology is just a blast, and, and everybody knows it. it. It is fun to think rightly about God, to see deeper into the things that he's revealed, to see how it all goes together. Um, Christian people love that. And so you know, in, in measured doses and without indulging in nerdiness about it, you can, you can put some big doctrines out there. It's, it's, you know, people are coming to church to hear a well-prepared message about things that they sort of know, but they're looking for a little bit of help with. Theology is fun and people want it. And then what advice would you offer parents? I have kids and they're young and sometimes it's hard to know how to explain certain doctrines, and the Trinity looms large in that regard. You know, kids are not known for being abstract thinkers, mm-hmm. and yet the doctrine of the Trinity seems like an inherently abstract doctrine because there are no physical analogs that we can point to and say it's just like this thing that you can hold. Uh, what encouragement or advice would you give to someone who, who wants to help their young children start to understand rightly who God is? I think telling the, the big picture, the main story, that in the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit to make sure that 
if if kids are asked what's the main point of the Bible, they don't get all confused with like, well, Samson killed some people, but he was kind of a bad good guy. <laughs> you know, just kind of get off in the in the the weeds about it really quickly. If they just know that this is the this is the main thing, right? It's all about Jesus and the Spirit um, coming on the mission of the Father. Um, the other thing that's great about young children is they're great memorizers, and so it's a perfect time to get key Bible passages about this, you know, Matthew 28, the last verse in 2 Corinthians, uh, about the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then also something like the Apostles' Creed or even the Nicene Creed. Um, kids can just commit that stuff to memory, and it's in there, and when they are making mud pies in the backyard with their mind wandering, for well-formed phrases will float through their mind, and they will do the work of meaning-making. Hmm. The other thing I'd say, now, I am, I am not trained in child development. You know, I'm not a cognitive psychologist. There are experts in this stuff, and you should listen to them talk about what kind of abstract thinking kids are capable of at which age. I believe all that stuff. Here's, here's where I dissent. I think to say that God is Father, Son, and Spirit and then this apple has three parts, and the apple is kind of like God, that's that associative move I'm talking about. And I find that very abstract. You know, to change the subject from God to an apple, or an egg, or an iceberg, or a shamrock, and then expect the kid to connect how those two things are related, I find that to be abstract thinking. Hmm. And so um, I think... You know, we do object lessons and we do age-appropriate kinds of things that don't require kids to think abstractly, which is just cognitively, not developmentally appropriate. Totally on board with that. I just think God is like an apple is extremely abstract. And so uh, there's been a lot of really bad teaching in mm. kids' sermons and object lessons because yeah. it's asking them to do the very thing that we're not thinking they're able to do. Mm -hmm. I think telling the story of the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit and then memorizing the key phrases about it um, is probably the best teaching. Right. I mean, kids are fast. I, I think we might have video somewhere of me when my kids were little uh, talking to me while I'm trying to weed the garden, and they're saying, Jesus is God. No, he's the son of God. No, that's the same thing. And this <laughs> goes by like in two seconds, and I got a PhD on the Trinity, and I could not intervene fast enough to clarify that. You know, <laughs> they are going to churn through material, and they are going to do the job of meaning making. Yeah. We just need to make sure to give them a rich set of things to work with. Hmm. Fred, thank you so much for joining us on the CrossFit Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was good to be here. That was Fred Sanders on how to understand the Trinity. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.